Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today on the show, I'm joined by Francesca Burks. She is a design strategist, facilitator, planner, and cultural producer with decades of international experience in design, engineering, media, and advertising. In short, she knows how to transform data into understanding. As Wood Begat's global insight leader, Francesca identifies and synchronizes theories and design explorations from around the global studio and weaves them into research opportunities and thought leadership that help shape the future of design sharing and charting a path forward. And I'm really excited to have you on the show. This is another one of those times where, you know, we've been connected for a while through all the LinkedIn and all that kind of stuff. And we've we've had some chats, but this is our first time to really use a, a forum like the Deep Dive to kind of go deeper. So welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to to be with you, Philip. I really love the deep dive and the conversations that you've hosted. So I feel very lucky to be among one of the people you have on your show. You know, I'm, all praise and accolades are always well received here at the deep dive. So I, I really do appreciate that. It always makes me feel good that there's folks out there that are listening and paying attention to the conversations we're having. And it's really all in service of the guests. Like I could not do this without just having this amazing pool of, you know, just thinkers to have on the show. And and I consider you to be to be one of those people, obviously, you know, just just someone who's who's really ahead of the game. So I want to start off with you just walking us through how you developed into foresight practice. All right. A great question. So I guess the one quality I would attribute to myself is curiosity. And I've always been drawn to interesting thinkers, to deep thinkers. And I've always seen my life, I guess, in the way that you know, you are trained as an anthropologist. I always loved Margaret Mead's idea of, you know, making your life kind of like a piece of sculpture, that there is no one right path, that you really should see the act of living as a creative, you know, activity. And so I did work in media in a previous life, and I did work in advertising, and I'd always deeply admired uh, planners from the English persuasion from the UK, where they seem to draw on a lot of different references, cultural, literary, social, demographic, and then have this uncanny ability to synthesize and distill all of those different reference points into clear insights. And that to me felt like magic. And so at a certain point when I was thinking about, you know, what do I want to do next? Uh, I'd worked in advertising for some time. And while I loved the process of planning, I wasn't necessarily enchanted with doing it for just any organization in terms of, you know, their cultural values and what they were putting out in the world. And so 
a one point in time, I was working with a good friend of mine on wanting to do a project. This was back in like 2005, where we wanted to create a digital studio where we invited artists from around the world to imagine the world of tomorrow today and to not be you know, limited by the current reality or the current way in which we design and construct things. And we were trying to figure out how to do it. I think Facebook had just started and didn't seem like the visual medium that we wanted to use. And so I started talking to people about it because I was trying to figure out how to do it. And someone connected me to the director for Global Foresight at Arup. And in my mind of, you know, trying to create my path and where I go with my curiosity, I was really drawn to the idea that the built environment, that what Arup, what engineers, what Woods Bagot architects do is really design and build uh, I think with more of a sense of long-term, it's not a 30-second campaign. It really is about designing and building buildings, infrastructure that are going to be around for you know, 30, 50, 100 years time. So there's a lot more thought and hopefully insight and foresight that gets applied to the design of those kind of huge scale Uh, objects. And so I really was drawn, again, it's process, I guess, and curiosity that compels me and helps me make certain choices. And with foresight, I really, I guess, relish the thought of exploring plausible or possible scenarios that weren't necessarily, you know, reflections of what we have today. Because, you know, as we're all finding and living through right now, what we have today is not working. And so foresight opens up doors and says, okay, you know, using what we know of the world, but also based on what we see and the icebergs, there are parts of the iceberg that we see, but there are the deeper parts that we don't see. And as individuals in foresight, your role is really to kind of explore and dig into those signals, some of which are less loud, but still present and start to create stories, really, stories about the future. And I've always been a big sci-fi fan. (laughs) So that to me was just a really powerful way to pull people out of today to get them to start thinking about what tomorrow could possibly be. And, And that is just what a rich, what a rich possibility. And just what a great way to think about life, right? You don't have to necessarily embed yourself and where we are today, realize that this is where we are today, but then also start to work with others to explore where we could go. And then work, you know, when I work with engineers, they're highly practical. So they want to problem solve and start to create a roadmap linking today to tomorrow. And with architects, they tend to be, uh, I think, more expansive and explore and just frame the possibilities. So they're kind of coming at tomorrow in slightly different ways. And at the end of the day, as as long as people are willing to explore, I think that that's incredibly important. I mean, just a a lot in in that response and that answer, I was like kind of taking some notes and jotting down some key words in there that I think really gives us an opportunity to spread the conversation out even beyond 
my original notes. So we're already off to the races here. And, you know, one of the things that that you remarked there was, and it came up in, in the introduction, this idea of, of synthesizing and having this capability to pull seemingly disparate ideas and signals from different places, pulling them together and making something out of them that then becomes the insight. And that sounds, of course, very exciting, but it's also very, very difficult to do when, particularly when faced in a business or economic environment that is looking for things that can be quite immediately commercialized or turn into a, a revenue opportunity. So I want you to spend a little bit more time on not just the, the practical ways in which synthesis happens, but also the sort of business ways in which this is applied. Because as you mentioned, you're in, in spaces that is dealing with the very tangible, whether it's previously at, at Arup or currently at, at Woods Bagot, you know, these are places grounded in the tangible, even as you explore the theoretical. So I want to spend some time in the journey of synthesis, given those conditions. That's all entirely true. I think I, I just wanted to set myself up for the impossible um, of, of doing both, right? Philip, because you're right. I think I learned pretty early on, especially when I joined Arup, you know, it was clear in advertising, you're here to sell products, right? And so the insights are related to how you make the product more compelling to the consumer. In the built environment, it's a little bit more removed, you know, the, the transactional nature, the commercial nature of the relationship is a little bit a few steps back, but it's still there, you know, so I think you're right. I have had to figure out how do you do this within the context of the business. And when I moved from the UK to the US, I found that there were kind of some fundamental cultural differences, you know, in the UK where there was an appetite to think more long-term. I came to the US and it was like, well, what's going to happen in the next year? You know, like you're talking 30, 20 years out, uh, which you can afford to be creative and take creative liberties when the future is that far off. But if we're talking about the next year, the next three years, you have to be more tangible in terms of what you're thinking about. So what I have found is, you know, working with particular sector leaders, business leaders, I definitely invite them, you know, to talk about their business, but quite often through the lens of the future in terms of what are you most excited about? What are some of the developments that you're seeing that you think are really going to transform or change the future of travel or the future of retail? So it's grounded, right, in their commercial space, but I also want them to always be thinking about the possibilities, you know, in terms of like challenges that have emerged that perhaps we weren't expecting or the ones, you know, that just got accelerated because as we all know, COVID's been an accelerator. And so part of it is teasing out of them, 
you know, what they're seeing over the horizon. And it's probably more immediate, but I still want them to kind of like challenge themselves, challenge us, and to think a little bit beyond, you know, the day to day into some of the trends that they're seeing, some of the things that they're seeing that are kind of like those, you know, signals that are quiet. Because if they're emerging, if they're kind of on the horizon, they're still nascent and not necessarily fully named. And I think that in having conversations, this is where I think language is really powerful, you start to name and and put ideas that perhaps were like simmering under the surface, but by having that dialogue and that conversation, you start to kind of put out, you know, possible future directions. And so it is grounded in the business, but it's also saying, hey, like what's next? You know, there's what's now, but what do you see that's coming next that we should be thinking about? And the notion of of next is is really interesting because again, you, we we're talking about built environments and that tangibility. Like I, I really am, am hitting that pretty hard because I, just in the zeitgeist, in the cultural zeitgeist, I think there's a penchant or an idea that the things that are that are next that are innovative live in quote unquote technological or data spaces. And I've always had this notion or this idea that one of the things we need to think about in terms of innovation is actually maintenance and repair. How do we kind of keep a lot of the infrastructure and a lot of the things that we have currently just kind of going? Right. If you think about like Roman aqueducts and pyramids and stuff and cathedrals, like how do we keep this all going? So I want to, you know, I offer that as an idea to to ask you, like, as you think about next and you think about these ideas of moving things forward, is there some factoring in around maintenance and repair? And how does maybe the past factor into how you think about the future? For sure. Listen, I think it's a, it's an incredibly good point. And I guess I share with you, not necessarily a full faith in a complete technotopia future. I think people, people are very powerful. I remember when I first took macroeconomics, being told that humans are rational agents, and that we should understand them as rational players. And I was like, what? You know, I just did a liberal arts undergrad and it was all about exploring feeling and emotion and how Macbeth does things based on feelings and that not necessarily from a rational part of the brain. So I think you have a really good point that sometimes the maintenance seems like the least exciting component of evolution, but it's incredibly important. And it's a, it's, it's a very real part of the built environment. And so I know when we've done, you know, sometimes explorations of connected streets of the future, one of the questions we ask a series of questions, because we want to understand, you know, who are you building this for? Who is going to be responsible for maintaining it? Because it's great to put it to your point, a big new idea or innovation or thing out 
in the world, but if no one's going to take responsibility for maintaining it, then it's not going to work. And I think that's you see that, you know, across agencies. We can take New York, for example, where I've, you know, I'm trained as a facilitator and I've facilitated conversations with different public agencies. And you're talking about creating a new green space or new green infrastructure. And that really practical question comes up of like, who's going to maintain it? You know, you can't just put things out there without thinking about the maintenance. And so I think that that's a very real responsibility as we put things out there. And it just reminds me of, you know, I want to say like a decade ago when I'm not going to say who and I can't remember, but like, let's say a large tech company decided that they wanted to help some of the youth in the continent of Africa and started sending laptops, lots of laptops. And there was no infrastructure. You know, there was no thought put towards, well, how are we going to set this up? Who's going to maintain it? who's going to have the training to instruct with this technology, this innovation that you've, you know, shipped over to us. So you, you could see how that starts to kind of fall apart and unravel really quickly if you're not thinking about governance, like in terms of like responsibility, who's going to be involved, and that doesn't have to be the government, that can be the community. You're seeing lots of communities who've done so much during COVID uh, in terms of, you know, taking care of their own. And so I think that the question of responsibility and maintenance has to be part of any time we put something new out into the world. And you know, I am a big fan of Marshall McLuhan's. I think I told you that, Philip. And there is always that question of, you know, when you put something out, when you put something new, his four laws of media, what do you lose, you know, with the introduction of this new technology? And I consider him a, you know, technology philosopher who was asking all of these deep questions because he understood humanity and he wondered what technology would do to all of us, you know, from a cultural perspective. And so I think, you know, yeah, we should always be thinking and, you know, um, about the questions of like, can we introduce this? Like, do we have the capability, the competence to introduce this? Will we, you know, will we actually, you know, get around to it? Is it a priority to us as a society? And then the most important question to me is, should we, should we put this out? Because there are some things that humans are not ready for. And, you know, that's where I think sometimes power and affluence can distort that third question. But hopefully, you know, the planet will still be around in a hundred years. <laughs> well, the, the planet will certainly be here. Uh, whether we will be in the way that we are now is, is another, another story. I am. I never worry about the planet. It's been here way before us, and it will be here long, long after. Very but true. I think the points that you make are very relevant, and I, I'm excited by them because they perfectly segue into the culture conversation, right? And when you start to pull apart these notions of power and who is setting agendas, I think it gives us an opportunity to start to think about, you know, how does our culture add to these conversations? The notion of of putting laptops and and having you know to use that example because I do remember when that was like a thing. You know how do those ideas get born 
And then how do they get the resources and the scale to be put into action? And, it, and it's not just one person, right? Like this is a web of, you know, conferences like TAD and, you know, other forums and newspapers that push certain agendas and ideas and, and make them seem as if they are just natural, right? The idea of technology always being better is a cultural idea, right? That every new iteration of the thing is better, you know? So I, I want to like get your thoughts on, you know, how we pull apart that culture piece. Oh my gosh, Philip! How long do we have? Um, I think. Listen, we have enough time. <laughs> I know you. You raise like a really good point because I do think that culture is such a key part of all of this. You know, in in the way that we normalize certain mental models, whether that's you know the economy or capitalism or patriarchy or socialism like you know we have a way as human beings of normalizing and raising to prominent certain models right not all models and there are certain power structures and groups of people who have been the ones kind of with the megaphone normalizing certain ways of of thinking and again you know Mina Salami said some really powerful things in, in that respect in terms of like who gets access to the megaphone, who controls the megaphone, and they have the ability to broadcast and normalize. And that can be, you know, in any number of ways in terms of when I think of like industries, like the music industry can do that. The movie industry can do that. The tech industry, you know, and media, you bring up like, you know, Ted, like, so there are all these ways in which the New York Times, which I read in its own way, contributes to the normalization of certain opinions and perspectives, a little bit more varied, I I think more and more. But so I just think culture has a really strong role in terms of perpetuating certain models and certain ideas And what we need, you know, recently you've probably read this, you know, people really being worried about the, you know, loss of local news and what happens when you no longer have communities being able to learn about themselves. And you could say, you know, we are in the U.S., a deeply polarized country. And when you start to lose those local voices, I can only imagine that making that worse. Because when you don't feel represented, when you don't feel like you can participate, you know, that can really be frustrating and lead to feelings of disenfranchisement. And I also think like it's really important for us to feel engaged as human beings and doing it at a local level is far more accessible than at a global, but I've moved away from your original question, which is like, how do things like sending millions of laptops happen? And I really think it's kind of, yeah, you're right. It's not one person, a marketing department and in talking to like the head of engineering, because they have a less expensive model that's really child-friendly, talking to the CEO who's just been to TED. So you can start to see all of these influencing factors coming together, but in some ways it's still in a vacuum. 
right? It's still in a vacuum. And like, I, I remember being reminded of this when I went to attend the International Federation on Aging's conference in Copenhagen. And at the time, <laughs> I was one of the younger people in the room. And I was like, oh, this is really kind of interesting to see that it tends to be older individuals who are passionate and advocating and showing interest in aging society and how we need to plan for it. And then I was also invited to a conference called Reboot, which was all about technology, culture, society, and really inviting like deep conversations around what we're doing with technology and what are we excited about? What should we be thinking about? You know, what should we be questioning? And I went to that and was like, oh, look how young this group is. It's the complete opposite. And I kind of loved going back and forth. So I spent like three days going back and forth between the two very different bubbles. And I think that's part of what ends up happening, right, is you start to live in a bubble and you start to kind of only take all of your direction and all of your diet from that one place. And we've definitely seen this with like social media and the echo chambers. And I think that that leads to the kinds of decisions that we sometimes see with the laptops. And and that's not to say that tech companies haven't come up with some, you know, great innovations and that there's the ability to leapfrog, you know, in emerging parts of the world, some of the mistakes that we've made in developed parts of the world. But I think we have to figure out how to break out of these bubbles and listen more. I haven't done a very good job of that on your podcast. I'm talking a lot, but I just think, you know, as a trained facilitator. Well, you're kind of here to talk. Ah, thanks, Philip. But as a trained facilitator, I really value the ability to listen and to want to understand because not everyone wants to understand, right? Like Twitter creates this kind of environment where you just want to win. You just want to win the debate. And it's not the best example of active listening or demonstrating a desire to understand. And I think that that's really important. And I find, you know, I'm, I'm very influenced by my husband who's done a lot of coaching training, outward mindset training, and more and more, I have to, I kind of talk myself down and I say, you know, hold back, stop making quick assessments or assumptions. Why are you reacting in the way that you're reacting? Try and understand where this person is coming from. And it's just a completely different conversation when you do that. And I think maybe to some extent, in in a culture or in some cultural bubbles in the United States that are really motivated by commercial incentives and quick, right? Not long-term foresight horizon scanning, but more immediate tangible results. There is kind of self-fulfilling prophecy to make decisions quickly and to get the word out in the press and celebrate these quick wins when maybe we all should be learning to slow down. You know, we see the slow culture movement. We need to slow down and listen more and try and understand more and not feel this like frenetic impulse to decide and do. Listening is an act. Trying to understand is an act. Uh, And I think we see glimmers of it right now because we've all been, you know, in lockdown, which 
leaves a lot of space for contemplation. But you just hope that as the economic machine revs up, that it doesn't get so frenetic as it once was. I don't want things to be as frenetic as they were. I hope I'm not alone. It has definitely, I'm wary of of wading into the COVID only because I wanted to go back to community polarization and language. So I'm going to put a pin in COVID and we're going to come back to it. And when I say COVID, I mean like the idea of where we are now and coming through or out of into a future. And as you're detailing and walking through the notions of bubbles and how we get into echo chambers and this language exists and it's out there. And I'm often like confronted with, I always get puzzled by this conversation because I don't, I don't know, I guess they're bubbles, but some parts of me question the bubble analogy, right? Not from you per se, but just in general, right? Because I say to myself, I I look around the world and I'm like, well, there's kind of just one really big bubble. And that really big bubble is is sort of like the other things you were talking about, right? Like it's kind of capitalism and kind of that the global machine of extraction. And then within that bubble, there's kind of silos of folks that debate to what degree we're going to operate within this big bubble, right? So we're going to determine that, you know, a big part of the world, it's a big success if they go from surviving on a dollar ninety to like two twenty, right? Or whatever the arbitrary number is, or we'll say like, oh, emissions can go here, but they'll go, you know, whatever. But we're not really wholesale discussing the notions of whether or not any of these measurements make sense, right? So that's like kind of one little editorial piece. But then this idea of the polarization, what I found, and I'm only speaking from my personal experience, and and you might have a similar experience from a different angle, is that the ones that feel most polarized, to me, are the ones that have the most power. And the the language of polarization seems to have been co-opted by those who have everything, but yet feel as if they're under duress. And so I'm really curious as like, I don't know, is it polarized or is it just a bunch of people who all of a sudden now have to listen to other people feel like this whole thing's falling apart, right? So I, I know I had said like a whole lot in that, but I'm just, feel free to I'm trying not to on... scream, Philip. I'm trying not to scream. Listen, <laughs> um, I think, yeah, let's get real here. I just had this conversation with my husband where I was, <laughs> where I was like, he was reading something to me. There was a white man who wants to talk about disenchantment with the way that corporate America is set up. And I think you're right. The big bubble, it's really a big bubble in the sense that it is the reality that is imposed on all of us, right? So the big bubble is designed by those in power. It benefits, you know, those in power. And the moment that it starts, you know, we start to let a little air out of the bubble, those people who have designed and operated the bubble for a gazillions of years start to experience duress. And when you get to be the designer, the arbiter, (laughs) 
the beneficiary of that huge bubble, it reflects everything that you need. It enhances, it benefits, it augments, it amplifies you, and you've never really had to experience duress, right, for a particular type of affluent, powerful person. And so, you know, the minute that some of those, that segment starts to experience duress, it's like, wow, like, stop the press. We have a big story. It's called polarization, only because they've never experienced what it's like to be other and to have to perform and to have to be something because you're conditioned and told that that's what's acceptable. And so I think, yeah, we're seeing, I have a hard time sometimes being patient. I try and force myself because I'm like, are you kidding me? You're throwing the toys out of the pram when you've been like running the whole gambit. And it's, uh, it's, it's hard to feel a lot of empathy, but I think it's, you know, but I, you know, in some ways we have to, because we need to understand, we need to understand the shootings. We need to understand the violence. We need to understand, you know, white supremacy. And I've, as I've heard others say, you need to talk about it so that we are all on the same page about what's going on. And yes, I I do think that there's a part of the population that's never necessarily experienced struggle and is experiencing it slightly for the first time and don't feel represented when they've always been fully represented. And it's crazy. I mean, yeah, there needs to be more psychology done on all this because it can quickly get scary. And as I was talking to my husband, I was like, you know, what's concerning is when January 6th, when some of these folks get frustrated, they externalize their anger. Done a lot of reading about this as a woman, like women and other minorities tend to take out the violence on themselves, tend to mutilate themselves, tend to practice self-harm on themselves when they're frustrated. There is, you know, a particular segment of the population typically in, in power that when they get frustrated, they explode on all of the society. And we need to take a look at that. We need to kind of like deal with that because that's not okay. It's not okay, but we've normalized, right? Like I, like I'm a Canadian, but I live in New York. So I'm like, I don't understand. Why do we not look at the guns, take away the guns? This is just like not acceptable. Is it more important to have access to that right than it is to protect society? Like society versus that one individual set of individuals having access? Like it's, I guess, coming from somewhere that believes in universal healthcare and like the sense of community and how we should be working for the benefit of the community rather than fighting and advocating for individual rights. You know, we should be thinking about collective benefits and working towards collective values. And, you know, I think there's an, an ego to that kind of mentality that's like me, 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 me. And a lot of us have been like, we, we need equity, you know, and we, not I, except if I'm talking to my husband, my kids, I barely say, I. you know, it's like we, what do we want to work towards? And I think there's some deprogramming that needs to happen and new ways of living, working, being that needs to happen. You know, that really circles us into 
you know, a lot of these conversations are anchored in the future, right? And thinking about viable futures. You know, I always emphasize the plural because there isn't one linear future that we're all marching towards. We have any number of possible scenarios and outcomes based very much on the decisions that we choose to make in our present, right? The future is always unfolding. And to that point, and, and kind of related to this conversation about voices and access and giving people the microphone, you know, how do we ensure in these processes that we are bringing different voices to the table? And as much as, you know, we all use that terminology and we'll say, oh, we really want to do this. But, you know, we both live in New York and, you know, I've seen a New York transformed from the late 90s through the early 2000s to now, where there has been no voice of what actual New Yorkers need in order to thrive and prosper in this city. It has only been the interest of the moneyed class developers and how do you bring in high luxury tourism, right? The design goal has been to turn New York into a frictionless playground for wealthy people, whether to live or to visit or some combination thereof, under the guise of safety, right? So having said that and seen that as sort of a global move, right? Like many big cities have experienced the same thing, this sort of flattening of their culture in order to make them sanitized for wealthy folks. How do we ensure different voices and different people as part of these conversations? And the second part of that is who should those people be that are part of these conversations? Well, again, a great question. I think one of the things that this makes me think about is as a facilitator, having worked as a design strategist, it's really important. It's just not me alone. A lot of planners do this. A lot of architects do this. Engineers do this. It's really important that the stakeholders who will be impacted by whatever you're designing and building are part of that conversation. And I know that in some instances, it's just a checkbox. It's like something we got to do, legally required. But then there are other many instances where it's a really meaningful part of the design process. And I think that we should all be, those of us who have some influence, who have, you know, who are working in a role where we are designing and where we are impacting others, have a responsibility to make sure that those who will be impacted are represented, are represented and have a say and are involved with the design of what it will be, you know, their future. So whether that is a park, whether that is a school, whether that whatever the design is, I think it's really important. And I think it happens in pockets and it's legitimized in certain sectors, but I think it needs to happen in more places. And I I hear you on the sanitation, but I think what's also happened and I know we put pin on the COVID, but in terms of the hyper-localization that we're starting to see, because we are the ones who live in our cities, you know, and we are the ones who are going to be 
you know, for the foreseeable future, you know, populating and using like these community spaces. So, you know, the hope is that with the kind of reemergence of hyper-local, of the importance of hyper-local, that we have more of a say on what happens and that we start to really rethink the way that we design, how we design, who we involve in the design process. Like we're seeing all of this. We already knew there was excessive commercial property. There's still debate on who's going back to the workplace. Is it going to be hybrid? Yes, it will likely be hybrid. We definitely don't need as much commercial property as we have. So there's a lot of focus right now on affordable housing, you know, and that is certainly probably been needed in New York, to your point, since the 90s, since before the 90s. But it's taken this long for there to be like a serious conversation. And and you see that it's in Biden's recovery plan, you know, that I think there's 215 billion that's been earmarked for housing. And I want to say affordable, but that might be me being idealistic. And so I just think that now is a good time to question some of the things that I guess business was saying was essential and and necessary and that we're now seeing actually wasn't reflecting the needs of the people who live in these cities that we can't ignore them because, you know, international tourism, New York, New York as an international destination isn't going to be back in motion for the next few years. and, And the city knows that. So they have to rethink you know, and really kind of unfortunate because it feels like the trajectory that you described that sanitized city would have continued if there hadn't been this huge pandemic, right? That we would have gone, again, that frantic, like gerbil on the wheel, we would have kept going, kept going, kept going, but then someone stuck a stick in that wheel And everything went flying. And now we're looking at all the pieces and saying, okay, okay, how do we rebuild? How do we rebuild from here in a way that makes sense? And it's unfortunate that a crisis and tragedy has forced that to kind of rethink and reset, as you know, is a big word out there right now. But I think those of us who are in a position where we are the designers, where we are the conveners, And you know that that plays out in many ways on podcasts, on conferences. I always am looking and like, really? Poor white men? Like, that's the best you could do? Like, this is like a diverse, like, planet. (laughs) Like, come on. But I think anyone, I guess, so I'm using like design, like in the broadest sense, like, you know, is that capital D, lowercase d? But like in the broadest sense, we construct meaning, we make things tangible. We ultimately end up making things tangible. We put out the stories and we have a responsibility to really make sure, again, that the communities who will be impacted by what we convene, who we convene, what we design are part of that process. Like, And how we normalize that, Philip, I don't know. It's just, it's, I think, that balance that we have to strike between what we do as individuals, and this is also, when you think about like climate change and the environment, what we do as individuals is equally important as what we do as a collective globe. And you got to walk both of those. You got to commit to both of those and not just say, well, that's the responsibility of the people over there, the collective. 
like I can't do anything about it, but that's not true. Most of us can do something. And to that point, like, because I, I just put a pin in the COVID thing, not wanting to, because if I'd gone into it, then I would have lost where I was at that moment. So I'm going to reopen it. And as we kind of making a check on time, like we get into the final two segments of the show, but I do want to leave space to talk about it because it has been such a human challenge for all of us as we've had to, wherever we've been in the world, we've had to navigate this reality and what it has meant for us personally, professionally, some combination thereof has all been unique in some ways, but also universal in others. So I want to ask in, in a more general sense, like given what we've seen of COVID, we're, um, we're a year from when I guess people could say it kind of really became something we all had to to deal with. It's been, I guess, a year or maybe a little bit over a year. You know, as we look across the landscape, you know, has there been a true commitment to make the shifts necessary, not just for COVID as a thing, but to really rethink how we've been living our kind of collective lives? And I know that's kind of a big question toward the end, but, you know, I have kind of my own thoughts on it, but I'm always offering this to other to other folks. So I'll, I'll leave it there and let you weigh in. Mm, I feel like right now we are kind of it makes me think of like the long tail like that, that we're all kind of living out unique experiences although it is collective right there is like a sense of this universal like it's like how often does the entire globe experience the same crisis like you know yes the climate change but it's it feels less visible because it affects certain parts of the globe more than others. So you can kind of like pull back from that. But with the pandemic, there is no pulling back. Like I think the New York Times said like, you know, one in three, I was shocked, one in three Americans has, you know, been affected, has known someone who's died, who's been really um, affected. And so a part of me sees that there are those who have taken the, the opportunity to really reflect on what's not working. And I don't want to be too idealistic. I certainly see the election of Biden and Kamala, which was happened in the thick of this, right? Like we're still living it, but it happened in the thick of this. And that was at least for me, I always feel like as a Canadian who can't vote, like I'm kind of like an anthropologist, like I'm McLuhan watching over the border. Like I'm living here, I'm here, but I'm not of here. And seeing Biden and Kamala get elected to me was a resounding, like, we're done. We're kind of like, we're done. I don't want to go over the millions of this or that votes, but like a greater part of the population was like, we're done. We, this toxicity is not working we need something else. And everything that you've seen up until this point has been focused on, again, I see, I'm see i seeing the, the headlines from my view, but like compassion and restoration and fixing and looking at the cracks, not focusing on the sanitized, the glossy version of the United States, but actually saying, oh my gosh, look at all the things that are broken you know, in our society, in our communities, in our infrastructure. And we haven't done that in a long time. So that gives me hope that you have this world leader 
who is saying we need to fix, right? We're not the shiny beacon that we have been peddling and selling to the rest of the world. And if the leader of the United States can admit that, that kind of creates a space for others. So we're not, so we haven't seen it fully, Philip. We haven't seen it, but I want to believe that it creates permission to not overlook and minimize the things that are broken. It makes me think of, you know, when South Africa went through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, like that was a necessary process to not just jump and skip the pain. And I think we've seen a few moments of that, of like, there is pain and we have to acknowledge that and we have to deal with it. And you need to deal with it before you start building new stuff, right? Like look at what's broken. And then once we address that, then let's talk about like, you know, what's next, but you can't skip that really important part. And I, I guess I hope it's like a domino effect in that other places. Cause you already seeing like, you know, New Zealand leadership do this. You're already seeing in some places, Angela Merkel saying that maybe the Germans were too perfectionist in their response to COVID and maybe they should have like been a little bit less controlling. So I have hope, but I don't feel like we're just seeing the beginnings and we know terms like that. I hope that this continues, that this doesn't end in four years and that this is the beginning of another chapter. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there should never be a, sh- a shortage of hope. You know, one of my really good friends and uh, someone who's been on the show a couple of times, Lena Savastova, she's written quite a bit recently about hope and the, the powerful activity that lies in hope as a part of how we work as activists, how we work to create new space and and all those very, very important elements. So I really want to want to echo that. And, you know, I, I'm always, I'm not one to go for the like, are you optimistic? I don't like that question because I think it just by answering it, it sort of forces people to make a dichotomy that I don't think is, is really an honest choice because hope really has nothing to do with optimism in the classic sense. And I think you summed up some really important ideas that there's now new space. There's permission to kind of talk about and advocate for things that are very important as, as we move forward. So that's a perfect way to kind of end that piece of it. You know, and with the time we have left, I want to get to the final two sessions of the show. And I feel bad because I didn't, there's a bunch of stuff that I wanted to really talk about that I didn't get a, a chance to, but another I Another time, leave. Philip, another time. I know. I always say to guests that that just gives them the opportunity for the remix when they come on the show and and we do it all over again. But I'm going to really push listeners to check out the essay that you wrote when you joined um, Woods Baggett, because I pulled up quite a bit of questions from that because it's a a meditation and an exploration on not just for someone taking on a, a new role within an organization, but what are some possibilities within the space as it pertains to looking at insights, making them tangible, bringing new people to the table. So a lot of the inspiration for our conversation was based not just out of our shared relationship from being connected, but that essay. So I think it's something that will be worthwhile for our, our listeners to spend some time with. So I'll leave that there and I'm gonna get to Off the Dome. And Off the Dome are just quick questions like it says, the first thing that comes to your mind is likely going to be the right answer. So I have four of them. 
And the first question actually speaks to when we were arranging this interview, where we made the point of saying like, it's falling on, on April Fool's Day. And I made the joke that April Fool's Day is just the absolute worst as a holiday occasion. So I want to ask you, having said that, what is one of your most annoying holiday or special occasions? Oh, that's such a good question. You know, like it's probably, I'm probably not alone in saying this. I would say Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day to me has always felt, and I, you know, I love Hallmark cards. It's always felt, we have a bunch of holidays that are really kind of like reasons to spend money, but just it kind of puts a lot of pressure on people who are single and people who are together. And I don't know how effective it is as a celebration of love or like, what are we celebrating? Yeah. <laughs> because I'm like, what are we celebrating here? But I, I will say that my dad had a really great ritual in spite of my saying Valentine's being one of the worst is that he used to buy me a book. Like he used to buy me a book for Valentine's day. And so I was always excited to see um, there's this great bookstore in Montreal, Nicholas Hoare bookstore. And I used to love going in there, but he'd always come back with a card and a book and that's so much more satisfying than a bunch of roses and chocolates and like, cause there's real thought that's been put yeah. there. And so that I liked, even though I'm not a big fan of Valentine's. Absolutely. That's a good one. And I love that ritual that your dad shared with you. That's amazing. Now, a lot of industries have a lot of jargon. They have a lot of terminology that they use. In your mind, what is the most overused word or term or idea within design? Ooh. My goodness, that's a good one. Beyond um, design itself, which is kind of also an overused word, <laughs> just in life. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's, it's you know, maybe I'm guilty of some of these things. It is like, you know, words like innovation and transformative and that kind of stuff. Like, because I guess because we get to build big things. It's like, oh yes, we are masters of the universe. So I would say that, I guess it's always got to do with like big scale, <laughs> a bit of ego perhaps going on there. <laughs> Those are all really good ones. If you could have anyone in history as an imaginary friend, who would that person be? Oh, anyone. You know, I, I would have to go back to Marshall McLuhan. Like I would really, I, you know, I remember seeing this, like I read up so much about him that he loved to drink gimlets and like, I just wish he and I could sit down and have a gimlet and that he could kind of tell me where he thinks we're headed, you know, cause he was so good to your point, Philip of, he wasn't afraid of, of history. Like in some ways he was so confusing, even as an like, academic, cause they didn't know what faculty to put him in, but he was a deep historian. So he read all the classics. He went to Oxford or Cambridge. I can't remember. One of those old schools with huge historic traditions. But then he kind of used the patterns that he saw there as a launching point to create frameworks to think about humanity and the future we were constructing for ourselves, like culturally through technology. So I would love to sit down with him. He also had a, like a good sense of humor. <laughs> Like, and so I would just want to talk about wh how are we doing? Like, where are we going? Are you it's worried? A good conversation. <laughs> nothing, and nothing wrong with a good conversation over some good cocktails. So that's an awesome one. And finally, 
If you can have an unlimited supply of anything for the rest of your life, what would that be? This is going to be really, really boring, but I love these Vermont socks. Now I'm I'm kind of like mimicking Bernie Sanders <laughs> with his wool minutes. Wool minutes. Uh, wool minutes. That's another one. But they're called Darn Tough. They're made in Vermont, and they're the best socks I've ever had. And maybe because they're so good, I don't need a lifetime supply of them. But they've been the most satisfying pair of socks because I don't have holes in any of them. Like, you know how, like... The socks just don't seem to last for very long. Yeah. So I think Vermont darn tough socks would have, to, and they're so comfy. They're very comfy too. You know, <laughs> Long I lasting. love that. I love that name because it plays on so many different levels, right? Like darn and a darning of a sock. Like that's some damn good branding. I'm going to look those up. After. You took it to new places for me, Philip, but I just like that. It's also pretty darn straightforward. Darn tough yeah. socks. Yeah, that's a good one. Darn socks. I'm going to look for that. So that that was awesome. So the final segment of the show is the drop. And the drop is just an opportunity to share anything of interest, you know, with our listeners. Could be anything at all. So I have a drop and I hope you have a drop ready as well. So do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? You go first because I, I'm now I'm really curious. I'm gonna oh, mine are, mine are actually really, really simple. Like they're going to sound, I don't know, sometimes I drop these things and I feel like people are going to be like, oh, it's so heavy, but I'm like, it's not. My drop this episode are actually two things, but connected. Harvard Business Review and Stanford Social Innovation Review. Two magazines that at the beginning of this year, maybe the end of last year, I actually decided to like, like subscribe to them as someone who would, you know, kind of poke around the free articles, like as many as I could get for free at any one particular moment. And or I would flip through them in a bookstore. And I always wanted to make the commitment to kind of getting them in print and all that kind of stuff. And I never did it. And finally I did. And I think they're really useful for a variety of reasons. Not so much because they are known quantities and they come from schools that people recognize, like oh, Harvard and Stanford and all that kind of stuff. But I think if someone is just generally interested in kind of business in the broadest sense and maybe in economics and those kind of things, they're discussing those things very broadly, but from two very different perspectives. And where I've found they're useful is when I start to see ideas and themes overlap in both. So they become like sort of, as people look for like signals and trends and stuff, I kind of see like, what are the articles and who's writing this and where'd they pull this from? And I found it to be useful. So and they're, they're actually well done. Like not saying everything in any particular issue is going to be the best thing you've ever read. But again, if you just want to kind of keep a toe in traditional business, I think either of those or preferably both together could be very useful. So that is my drop. I will check those out, Philip. I'm like you. I'm like, I go for, with the free for as long as possible. And then <laughs> if, if I'm really into it, then I'll make the commitment. So I had two things. So one is similar to your podcast. I really love a podcast by Ezra Klein. He used to do it for Vox. He's now doing it for the New York Times. And I think that right now in this year, I've really been drawn to expansive conversations and conversations which really invite 
deep explorations. I think I'm in this headspace where I really want to understand. And I find, like you, he asks really thought-provoking questions and questions himself. You know, he will kind of go at himself and say, I'm having a really hard time finding anything to like about Trump. And he's quite honest. And I think he debates kind of himself and his guests. And sorry, I have a a little person who's just come in. Um, so no, so I like that the fact that he really goes deep into the into conversations. That he really is selective, um, like you are about his guests. And he recently had George Sanders on, where they talked about you know both the complexity of being a human, you know, but also the opportunity when you start to understand that we are beings with multiple mindsets. And then once you start to understand that you don't attribute as much power to that one part of you, you can just say, okay, Francesca, like, I see that you're in a tizzy, but that's just this moment. And like, that's not entirely who you are and that you have the ability to negotiate who you bring, who you bring into the conversation, who you bring into the room and that it can change. And there's something really freeing in that. And so his conversation with George Sanders was one that really stuck with me. And also because they talked a lot about George Sanders' reflections on kindness. And kindness is something I feel like we've lost and that I want my kids to learn more about and that I want to practice more in my life. And I hope we all do. But those were topics that resonated with me. And then the second is my aunt, dear Maggie Atwood, uh, who has a recent collection of poetry called Dearly, kind of reminds me of darn socks. But what I really appreciate and have always appreciated about poetry is that they feel like literary postcards. They're really crisp. They're really clean. Kind of remind me a bit of Hemingway. But in the way that you describe my piece as being a meditation and an exploration, I really appreciate the tranquility and the serenity of you know her poetry of other poets but you know she's always drawn me in because she kind of quietly and calmly deconstructs cultural constructs and is very comfortable exploring it from multiple directions in a way that's thoughtful and just leaves me feeling more calm. And I guess in these times, things that kind of allow me to explore, but then leave me feeling serene are also top on my list of things to do. I'm all about serenity. <laughs> we, we definitely can't go wrong if there's a little bit more serenity in the world, a little bit more kindness in the world. Um, those are all very powerful attributes and those are great drops. This has been a great conversation. As promised, it was one I've been looking forward to quite some time. I'm glad we were able to make it happen. And I really want to thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me, Philip. It was amazing. I didn't know what to expect, but it surpassed. <laughs> surpassed. Oh, thank you. That makes me feel really good. It's given me energy for the rest of my days. So thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. Thanks for having me. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at Far Phil. To all my listeners, 
Wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.